Hello and welcome to Guiding Assets, the flagship investment podcast for CFA Institute. I'm Mike Wahlberg, and today I'm joined by Anubuti Gupta. Anubuti is a senior principal consultant for Mercer's Wealth Business in Singapore, which she joined last summer after 17 years with AXA Investment Management, most recently as their CEO for Singapore and head of equity quant for Asia Pac. She's also been very active within the CFA ecosystem over the years, serving on a number of institute committees, including the nominating committee for the Board of Governors. After just a brutal 2022, when stocks fell and bonds fell right alongside them, the landscape in, for investing this year is well different than it's been for very many years. Bond yields are up, PEs are down, privates are, well, they're sort of in flux, depending on when they were last marked. But the fact is, the riddle that investors have been trying to solve for the last 10 plus years, reaching for yield, avoiding valuation potholes and bubbles, has been morphed by these new dynamics. It's sort of a fresh slate and needs fresh eyes. So for our conversation today, we're going to focus on asset allocation. And I'm very excited to tap into Anabuti's deep expertise with it, both as an asset owner and as a consultant. So welcome to the show, Anabuti. Thank you, Mike. And thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. And you're absolutely right. We are living in very interesting times and the changes that we have witnessed in the investing landscape since, in fact, I would say COVID began are a first for many asset allocators and investors today, including myself. And in fact, 2022 did represent a regime change or multiple regime changes. The shocks that we saw, it simply served to exacerbate the underlying pressures and trigger this massive shift in investing conditions across a number of areas. So like, you know, just to kind of kickstart the conversation, I would like to highlight a few key themes asset allocators and investors should be paying attention to. There are several, but I'll just pick the, the most important ones in my view. So the first and most obvious one is obviously inflation. It has been one of the driving forces and concerns over the last 12 months, and in fact, slightly beyond that when it was considered transitory. Now, what we are seeing this year, some of the aspects of inflation are indeed beginning to soften. But in my mind, it remains unclear how long it will take for inflation to really return to a level that resembles the normal or central bank targets, if you will. So there are a number of factors which we are seeing, which I'm happy to touch on later, that suggest that the challenges, we are not out of the woods yet. The challenges of the current inflation bout are far from over. And if anything, inflation risk has actually increased in the long term. So how, how would you structure a portfolio today then to be resilient to inflation? If that's, it's obviously top of mind for investors, but if it's not uh, inflation, it's recession fears, or you know, as you know, in the week that we're recording here in mid-March, it's uh, fears of bank failures in the U.S. But top of mind for many investors is that inflation nugget there. How do you structure your portfolio to to survive it? Well, that's a great question, Mike. And I would say, like, you know, before I dive into that, just wanted to highlight a few key things, which kind of, you know, makes me say that we are not out of the woods yet. Investors continue to remain on alert because the regime itself has changed especially in regards to inflation. In fact, like, as I mentioned, it seems unlikely we will simply return to the stable low inflation regime of the post-GFC for several reasons. For one, globalization is slowing. Policymakers may be tempted to keep interest rates low to inflate away the debt. There are challenges with respect to energy infrastructure and security. 
we can experience a so-called wage price spiral and so on and so forth. So what that means is going forward in this new regime, we will continue to see more regular inflationary shocks combined with inflation running modestly above central bank targets. Now, what does this mean for structuring the portfolios? All of this, it points the need to structure portfolios for inflation regime management, not just business cycle management. And while the two are closely intertwined, I have, we have seen some sort of untethering of inflation from the overall business cycle. And I think here we can look to history for a guide. There are some elements of the lessons of the 1970s and other period that we can call upon. So, uh, like for example, in 2022, inflation shock absorbers, such as commodities, which have a very strong inflation beta, did well in protecting against inflation surprises. But going forward, as inflation settles at a higher level and we start seeing a slow deceleration, in 2023 and beyond, uh, we need to position portfolios for a new higher inflation regime, meaning a reorientation of inflation protection away from just shock absorbers towards longer-term assets with inflation-sensitive revenues, such as natural resource equities, real assets, linkers. And in fact, going forward, as we start seeing a, a downturn, a slowdown, things like sovereign debt and duration will serve well to protect the portfolio from both the downturn as well as benefit from falling rates. So it's like the, the phase that we are in. And what it means is investors, allocators, they need to be ready to manage portfolios dynamically as the inflation cycle and the business cycle both evolve. Portfolios, they should remain positioned to weather uh, various economic and inflationary scenarios by including a diversified mix of inflation-sensitive asset classes. Yes, you, you touched on something that I had been thinking about, which is folks often refer to equities as sort of that initial portfolio inflation hedge and this idea that, you know, businesses over time should, in theory, be able to pass on that inflation through higher prices. But you mentioned resource stocks specifically. So it sounds like you're saying that, that not all stocks are created equal in this way, but there are certain areas within within the public equity sphere that's sort of better at providing that inflation hedge for you. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And this kind of really ties to the theme of uh, investors should be positioning their portfolios for transition. You're right, like not all stocks are created equal. So this, uh, the inflation cycle, the rate hike, it absolutely hammered the valuation of so-called growth equities, which inherently possess uh, long duration characteristics. And then there are stocks like natural resource equities, which can actually serve as an inflation hedge. So just touching on the natural resource equity, uh, this, this, this is about, to some extent, if you go back to the events of 2022, notably the Russia-Ukraine conflict, it kind of highlighted the need for energy security, innovation, and infrastructure. And uh, in fact, energy has now assumed an extra dimensionality in recent times. So whereas investors uh, in the past, they primarily focused on energy supply. Now they need to supplement this by focusing increasingly on energy efficiency, security, the, the, the infrastructure, the technology, as well as the materials that facilitate the transition. So for instance, things like transition-aware infrastructure, transition-aware natural resources, be it 
be realized through equities or through other instruments. These approaches could benefit from the energy paradigm shift. It could provide inflation protection. And it could also like help you make create more robust portfolios with the right return characteristics and also help you diversify your risk. So do you think of it from a style perspective? I know you touched on the impact on higher rates being outsized for growth companies, obviously, given that their cash flows are further out into the future and less certain. Do you see then that there's maybe some more runway for value stocks in general as, as the markets adapt to the new reality? Yeah, I would think so. Like, you know, the end of free money that we saw in 2022, it was very painful for the growth stocks. And I don't think this is going away anytime soon. I don't think growth equities are likely to re-rate and recover to their previous market highs unless we see near zero interest rates, as we have seen for the longest time for the last decade. Or if the earnings, unless we see earnings finally able to support the investment thesis, which also seems unlikely. So basically, yeah, short answer is no, I don't think that, first of all, there is room for more valuation sensitive approaches, more actively managed equities to outperform. And I don't think we are going to see a rerun of growth equities uh, akin to what it was in the past anytime soon. So as I mentioned off the top in 2022, there was literally no place to hide. So the one free lunch that everyone likes to talk about invest in and investing diversification was closed for renovations. So how should asset, <laughs> how should asset allocators be thinking about diversification in their portfolios? Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. And as you said, diversification is the only free lunch. And unfortunately, that free lunch was not easily accessible last year. I mean, there were some bright spots like commodities, some of the systematic macro hedge funds and so on and so forth. But you're right, it was a difficult year. And as we enter 2023 with higher rates and cheaper equity and bond valuations, there is a temptation that we are seeing from investors to think that there is now a stronger case from this point onwards for the traditional 60-40 portfolio. But I will caution against that. Reliance on such a strategy is risky because as I mentioned, as we have seen, equities and bonds may become very positively correlated during an inflationary environment that we saw in 2022. It was a painful time. And in fact, like 2022 was the first year in most investors' careers in which equities and bonds simultaneously produced negative returns. So we have, as investors, we have been spoiled by the generally low inflation over the past three decades. And we have come to rely on uh, equities and bonds being negatively or close to zero correlated. Because what would happen is in the past when equity markets fell, central banks would cut rates to restart the economy. And this allowed bonds to serve as the ideal food for diversification in risk-off market. In 2022, this relationship reversed. So we need to kind of realize and let it sink in. Markets are operating differently than we have been used to over the past decade. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the central banks didn't have any anything to cut was the problem, right? When, when <laughs> heading into 2022, yeah. they, uh, they there was no more dry powder to save the economy at that point. Absolutely. And that's why we should be looking at ways of diversifying more dynamically. So for instance, incorporating a specialist downside risk mitigation strategy or using real assets. And in fact, trying to incorporate multiple alpha sources amongst other levers to both ensure sufficient diversification within the portfolios, as well as having the right access to the necessary sources of alpha could serve investors well. The other thing that I think is a great idea, and we do a lot at Mercer as well, is stress testing and scenario analysis. 
it can help evaluate where portfolios might have diversification gaps and what portfolio adjustments or new allocations should be made. The other nice thing about relying on scenario analysis and stress testing, leveraging different paths that the portfolio can take, the markets can take, is you are not betting the house on one single outcome. You need to be able to prepare for different outcomes. You need to understand how things can evolve, how your portfolio will react to it. And having that awareness that there is no one single path that you need to prepare for is also a very important backdrop that you can have to achieve the right level of diversification in your portfolio and hopefully avoid the painful experience that we had in 2022. So one of the tools that investors have used, well, they've done done it for a number of reasons, I guess, but a lot of money flowed into private assets in the last 10, 10 plus years for a number of reasons. One, obviously, it was offering a little bit more yield in a period when there, when yields were extremely low. It offered the appearance, at least, of lower volatility because you know the, the assets weren't marked on a daily basis as they are in the public markets. But uh, what do you think about private assets today? Like, what, and, and I'll warn you that I'm going to head into the risk risk management uh, angle of it, or what? What I want to talk risk afterwards. But I'm curious what the case is for owning privates today is from your perspective. From my perspective, the case for private assets remain because for one, like the underlying driver has not changed. A lot of the innovation that you can access in private markets is not available in pu- public markets. Also, tying with the theme of energy transition, uh, just moving to a more sustainable world. In order to make those impact investments to really drive that change, again, uh, private markets serve as a useful tool to achieve that. Plus, as you highlighted, it does uh, show diversification benefits. It can deepen the volatility. Now, you know, I think it's a separate discussion. Like, is it because of lack of mark-to-market valuations, et cetera? But it does provide uh, that softening impact. Plus, the other nice thing, it could both be a bad thing and a good thing. And the other nice thing about private markets is people who have long horizons, uh, asset allocators, investors, who don't really need the liquidity, they can actually uh, capture that that premium through through the through private markets. So, what happened after 2022 was because of public markets uh, falling, private markets lagging in terms of mark-to-market valuations. Some investors they did get overinvested. So, in, in private markets, their allocations were higher than where they would like to be. Yeah, because yeah, you can't rebalance, right? Exactly. So it's like. It does not mean that you need to give up on private market assets. You just need to like reassess the total portfolio risk. You need to reassess like the level of exposure that you have today. Is it appropriate in the total portfolio context? And going by what the public markets have done, the level of what are your reasons for being in private markets? Is it if, if you are seeing more attractive returns in public markets at more acceptable levels of risk, then probably they could be they could be a case for some reallocation in that context but overall private markets are going to remain an important component of total portfolios going forward is there a, i know you said it kind of depends on the client and the and the specific situation for it but what what are you seeing out there in terms of allocations among institutional clients to privates and trend wise and it, it, how much is too much and and is, is there a rule of thumb for that? Is there a right allocation to privates? 
That's actually a very hard question to answer. And yeah, there is no good rule of thumb. It really depends on the type of investor we are talking about. So if let's say we look at endowments and foundations, they hold their portfolios to perpetuity. Uh, the liquidity needs are modest. So they can actually benefit from a higher allocation to private markets overall as a percentage of total portfolio. Whereas if we are talking about say insurers, they tend to have a matching portfolio and a growth portfolio. So obviously for the matching portfolio, they need liquidity. There is no rule for private markets there. But again, in their growth portfolio, which is held for the long term, and the purpose of it is to grow the assets. Again, private markets can play a very important role there. So the answer is it depends on what your objectives are, what you're trying to achieve, what your constraints are, what is your time horizon and risk appetite, etc. And what we are seeing is our investors, allocators, they are just taking this opportunity to assess what their level of exposure is, what is the risk that it is actually bringing to their portfolio, are they comfortable? But we are not really seeing any move away from private markets. It's just like a reassessment and readjustment of the amount of exposure that they have and the type of exposure that they have. The, the type of risk that it is a careful look at the risk that they have in their portfolio. But that's really it. And in fact, uh, I would say that people should continue with their pacing of commitments. They should not hold back because some of the best innovations come about in the face of a crisis after the kind of markets that we have seen recently. And also the other thing that has happened is access has opened up to previously closed funds. So this is also a nice opportunity for investors to access the funds that they could not before the market route. And here I just also wanted to touch on the importance of governance actually. Because this is one thing that I hold close, very close to my heart and it's quality governance because as we can see increasing complexity of investments and uncertainty in markets, what it points really is to the need for enhancements of governance models that allocators and investors have. And I think it's absolutely essential to meet long-term investing goals while also reacting to short-lived opportunities. So private markets, like they definitely require sophisticated capabilities to do due diligence, have a good handle on risk. So you absolutely need to take, investors need to take a careful look at their in-house resources and how best to optimize them and supplement them. Like what they can do more of and what, what to stop doing what they can do in-house, what they can outsource, what is their capacity to like really make and manage sophisticated investments, particularly in private markets, the ability to diversify in a more dynamic fashion going beyond 60-40. And then, you know, as you alluded to earlier, most importantly, properly manage the various risks. Because investing is, I think, more about risk management than actually, uh, to some extent, risk management is equally, if not more important than just a return focus. Yeah, I'd like to talk a little bit about that. I would, did have one more question for you on on privates before we leave it, though. And I guess maybe it's really kind of a, a thesis or maybe it's just an idea that I, I kind of keep going back and forth on in my head. And you touched on it a little bit there, which is this idea of opportunity in privates and, and, the, and the definition of risk for an investor. So if they have, if I'm getting your points right here, if, if, a, if an investor has a long enough time horizon, an appropriately allocated amount of private assets in their asset allocation so that when we go through a 2022, they don't end up 
too bloated in terms of that allocation while valuations normalize in other parts of their portfolio. And again, they have enough time to ride it out. Maybe it doesn't really matter if the investments underlying those private assets end up being a little bit out of skew. And what I'm thinking of specifically here is around private real estate, which is, you know, we saw REITs drop 20% last year and a lot of private real estate funds out there are posting high teens, low 20s performance on the same time period. So there's obviously a big disconnect there. And, you know, some of the, the, the bigger private real estate funds in the U.S. Are, have already started gating withdrawals there. So it feels like there's a little bit of risk in the offing there for, for holders of those funds. But the flip side of that is if and when those marks finally do happen and, and, and the valuations for those private real estate funds join up with reality, then there's actually should be some good opportunity for investing in those funds. And to your point about greater access to some of these funds, maybe, maybe there's actually an opportunity coming later this year when those funds finally take their markdowns. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, it's all about evaluating, you know, what's your tolerance for markdown versus losses. And the, I think, you know, I will just kind of keep it succinct. The question I you need to ask yourself is, are paper losses tolerable if they lead to long-term gain, right? So it's about like, I, I see this a lot and I think this is something that CFA Institute has done a tremendously good job on, is moving away from this short-termism like the withdrawals that we are seeing, it's a sign of panic in the investor space. And I have to tell you, Mike, I mean, I'm like really shocked by how the supposedly very long-term sophisticated investment committees have at times panicked and uh, made decisions or rather like tried to make decisions which are very detrimental. So, you know, it's really important to keep that long-term view at all times and carefully assess the actions that you're taking today, driven by your, your behavioral biases or the panic and fear that you're experiencing, will not serve the portfolio well over the next five years and 10 years. And you're absolutely right. I think we are going to see some really nice opportunities in private markets and even public spaces, uh, especially in private markets with access reopening. So um, investors should really keep calm, carry on, focus on the right governance structures. <laughs> And, uh, you know, make sure that they're ready to leverage these opportunities because these these opportunities don't come by easily. It's a once-in-a-lifetime thing. So it's very important to, as I said, have the right governance structures so you can act in a in a steady fashion. You know, you, can, you should streamline the decision-making process, anticipate all these market environment changes, and then take advantage of all these dislocations. Yeah, so let, let's talk about governance then, Anubuti. So part of your role at Mercer is working on the outsourced CIO business there, OCIO. Can you quickly describe what OCIO is for any of our listeners who haven't heard of it and, and speak to the governance argument for this model? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, OCIO in very simple terms is we are effectively implementing the advice that we give to the asset allocators. So instead of managing assets in-house, both, both from an uh, you know from like uh, from an implementation perspective, asset allocators they would outsource those assets to actually be managed by, by Mercer and other OCIO providers. Now the benefit of this is you may ask like how is it different from just plain asset management? The thing with OCIO is we work hand in hand with all these asset allocators. And it is not like, okay, you give me the assets and I'll manage it for you. I mean, we can obviously do that. 
But the approach here is the OCIO provider should almost serve as an extended part of the investment committee of the investment team that the asset allocator has. And the idea of OCIO is really to ease the pain point, free up the resources for the asset allocators, for their investment teams, investment committees, to focus on the highest value added activities where they think they have the capability and they can really bring value. And if outsourcing the other part of the value chain to OCIO providers. So for instance, if I take an example, it could very well be that they, they think they have a really strong team that can guide the asset allocation process. And also it's very good at taking tactical asset allocation bets. So that is that part of the process, the asset allocator, they can keep in house, but then for the rest, they just outsource it to an OCIO provider. So they, they guide what strategic asset allocation should be. They guide what the tactical bets should be, but everything else, portfolio construction, uh, manager selection. So we're coming to the end of our time today, unfortunately, Hannah Bhuti, but got the final two part question for you, which is what was your first job in the industry? And if you could go back and take yourself for coffee on your first day, what key piece of advice would you offer yourself? <laughs> That's the most fun question, Mike. So my first job was as a junior portfolio manager at AXA Investment Managers Quantitative Equities Platform called Rosenberg Equities. And it was just meant to be. I had no intention of joining them because when the job description came out, I saw things like knowledge of Fortran will be considered useful. And I'm like, God, I don't think this is, this is for me, but you need to keep an open mind. So I kept an open mind and I went for the interview. One thing led to the other and I ended up spending 17 years there. So it was a good decision in hindsight. And, you know, if I were to give a piece of advice to my younger self, it would be reminding myself of keeping an open mind, because I think as you get older, as you gain more experience, you tend to get hardened in your ways. You tend to become somewhat more inflexible. So, you know, it's an advice that serves young people well, that serves, you know, more seasoned people well. So I would just say, like, always keep an open mind because great things can come about if you do so. I've been speaking today with Anubhuti Gupta, a senior principal consultant for Mercer's Wealth Business in Singapore. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thank you, Mike. It was lovely chatting with you. I'm Mike Wahlberg, and this has been Guiding Assets.